who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. And like always, but in particular this week, we just want to reiterate that we are not doctors. Nope. (laughs) We are not experts. And if you are experiencing any of these symptoms or anything that we talk about in this episode, please consult a medical professional. Don't just rely on the things that we're saying in our personal experience. No, definitely don't do that. Yeah. No. So Madigan is sick. I'm sick, guys, and my voice sounds so sexy. I'm actually a really big fan of how my voice sounds right now. (laughs) Definitely speaking in my lower register. I'm talking really close to the microphone so y'all can hear me. And yeah, that's what's up with me today. In case you were curious. In case you were curious about this new and improved Madigan. <laughs> She'll be back to her old ways, I'm sure, <laughs> by next episode. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, today, as we said in our mini episode, May is Mental Health Month. Yep. And we are going to discuss this issue probably could have been split in half. But yeah. like we said, we didn't want to overwhelm you. So we are bringing you anxiety and depression today wrapped yes. up in one neat little bundle. Yes. Before we go any further, you have two eyelashes on your cheeks that need to have wishes blown on them. Okay. okay. I got you. Excellent. Okay. Here's one. I'm going to hold that in my hand. Okay. And okay. there's the other one. Okay. So make two wishes and blow. Okay. I have to think about this. I always wish for the same thing. All right. There you go. Okay. I'm sorry, Excellent. guys. It had to be done. No. Listen. Priorities. Right? Exactly. So, Okay. Yes, like she said, we are going to be combining the two together. I think a lot of times they go hand in hand. They very often go hand in hand, yes. Yeah, and um, they're two very, 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 very common things. Specifically among women, which is why I wanted to do this. Both anxiety and depression, um, women are twice as likely to suffer from. Yeah, approximately 12 million women in the United States experience clinical depression each year, which is bonkers. And uh, girls 14 to 18 years of age have consistently higher rates of depression than boys in this age group. Yeah, it's very interesting, actually, because... 
At the age of 11, boys and girls are equally likely to have an anxiety disorder, and that likelihood is usually pretty low. But if you bump that up four years, so 15-year-old girls are six times more likely than boys to suffer from um, anxiety disorders or depression. That's so funny because, like, that kind of follows my like diagnosis history. I think well, I was Well, there are reasons. Yeah, go. Tell me. <laughs> it help me learn more about myself, Keegan. I will. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> there is a nature versus nurture argument when it comes to why women are more likely to suffer from depression. Right. So, the nature argument um says that Estrogen and progesterone, which are the female hormones, might make the flight or fight response in women more sensitive, which may manifest in higher levels of anxiety. Additionally, some research suggests that the female brain is unable to process serotonin as effectively as male brains. So essentially, we are not only more likely to be easily pushed into fight-or-flight mode, but we're also more likely to stay on edge when that fight-or-fight mode rises than the male brain is. Um, the female brain is also more sensitive to the stress hormone. Um, gosh, okay, hold on. I practiced this. Let's see if I can say it. Um, you got this. <laughs> Corticotropin, corticotropin releasing factor, because testosterone seems to insulate the male brain against these factors. So uh, we don't have as much testosterone, so there's nothing yeah. blocking this like stress hormone yeah. that causes us to be highly anxious. Yep. Oh man. Yeah. For me, I was nine or ten. I forget when I was like officially diagnosed with anxiety and a panic disorder and um and then I think I was 15 when I was officially diagnosed Mm -hmm. with depression I think Mm -hmm. so that would make sense and I think that like from what I've read too because like when you're going through puberty that's when like all of those hormones are kind of all over the place which is why you're also you will also likely see a spike in um, mood disorders such as depression or anxiety during other times of hormonal change like pregnancy or post-pregnancy or even just when you're on your period or even just when you're on your period there's PMS versus, like, PMDD, mm-hmm. which is interesting to me because, like, I feel like people are always just like, oh, I just have really bad PMS, where, like, really there could be, like, other issues right. going on. Yeah, or even postpartum depression yeah. can also manifest its, or, like, change into postpartum psychosis, which yeah. is another thing that can happen based on, like, your hormonal differences. Yeah. And then something else that I found was interesting was because it's so directly linked to your hormones, you can see that the levels of depression or anxiety between men and women tend to level out post-menopause. Yeah. So before puberty and after menopause, men and women tend to have the same levels of anxiety and depression. That is the nature standpoint of why women may be more prone to depression, but there is also a nurture standpoint. Yes, which would be like stress from work, family responsibilities, roles and expectations of women such as like sexual abuse or poverty and I guess that goes for men and women too right where it's just kind of like socially where you are in your life I know for me you know having less money is definitely increased you know what I mean like it definitely is a big factor so I totally understand that yeah there are societal or situational issues that can um, prompt anxiety or depression yeah but as far as it being a direct like men and women um, comparison yeah 
they say that there is this thing called the skinned knee effect that happens with young women or small girls where it's basically like if a girl was to skin her knee and like run to a parent, she's more likely to be coddled and comforted and validated about her feelings. Whereas if a boy were to do the same thing, he would be kind of told to like like, walk it off, walk it off, man up. So they're developing these like coping mechanisms. Yeah. So this woman, Michelle Kresk, who's a um, psychologist, or maybe she's not a psychologist, she's a scientist, and she has a book called Nerve where she talks about the skin knee effect. She says, parents coddle girls who cry after a painful scrape and tell boys to suck it up, and this formative link between emotional outburst and kisses from mom predisposes girls to react to unpleasant situations with negative feelings like anxiety later in life. On top of this, cultural biases about boys being more capable than girls also leads parents to push sons to show courage and confront their fears, while daughters are far more likely to be sheltered from life's challenges. If little Olivia shows fear, she gets a hug. If little Oliver shows fear, he gets the urge to overcome it. So whether they intend to or not, they treat emotional outbursts from girls just far differently um, from boys. So like from a socialization angle... There's quite a lot of evidence that little girls who exhibit shyness or anxiety are reinforced for that behavior. Yeah. Um, Also, women, uh, kind of going off of that, women are more likely to seek help because of that. So it's like if men have depression or things like that, they tend to convince, try to convince themselves that they're okay, that there's not a problem. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Where women will be like, oh shit, there's something wrong. I have to get this figured out. Right. So men um, constitute just 37% of therapy patients, which is shockingly low. Yeah. And I have here, troublingly enough, the evidence shows that while women deal with anxiety and stress by worrying, men are more likely to try and bury these feelings with drugs or alcohol, which offers one rationale for why men are at a higher risk of antisocial disorders like alcoholism rather than mood disorders like anxiety or depression. I I was on this website where it was saying like the differences between men and women and some of them I feel like are kind of like extreme and not like entirely true where mm-hmm. it's like you know women with depression will feel more like lethargic and nervous men are more agitated and reckless which I mean it can be true but I feel like it's just very general like yeah. statements yeah. women commonly feel sad worthless and apathetic men tend to feel angry and irritable women blame themselves men blame others women feel anxious and scared men feel guarded so I feel like it's a very like blanketed statement but I just I found it interesting just to read to see like I agree that I think it's very generalized but I also think that from a societal standpoint that's That's what's been been reinforced in us it wouldn't surprise me if that is how it manifested differently in men and women not because of our genetic makeup but because of our cultural yeah and this one uh, it says women tend to talk about their feelings with ease men have self doubt and despair and consider depression a sign of weakness Mm -hmm. and I think that's definitely true like you and I can talk about our experiences where I feel like it's way less likely for, like, two dudes to get together and be like, man, I've been feeling these things lately. And, yeah. I mean, if they do, bravo. I think that would be amazing if men could talk to their fellow man like that. Yeah, I would like to have a whole nother episode just on mental health and, like, depression and situations like that within communities of color. Because I feel yeah. like, especially for men in, like, Latino and black cultures where there's so much, like... Uh, machismo and bravado and like masculine energy and this is what it means to be a man that they really don't seek help at all for any kind of like mental issues they may be struggling with yeah i've definitely kind of witnessed 
some of that, not yeah. experienced it myself. My my parents were great about, you know, the second that I was having problems, my mom was like, you need to get into therapy, and, mm-hmm. well, we're going to talk more about medication a little bit later, because yeah. that's a whole other problem. Um, I thought it was interesting that sometimes people will... Uh, depression typically isn't misdiagnosed or anxiety usually isn't misdiagnosed, but sometimes it can be hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism Mm -hmm. because those symptoms can be very, very similar. Thyroid disorders affect an estimated 20 million Americans and are uh, five to eight times more common in women than in men. And um, like I said, anxiety and depression have been associated a lot with thyroid disorders. Mm -hmm. And hypothyroidism, which is an underactive thyroid, has similar uh, symptoms of depression, where hyperthyroid syndrome can very much mimic the symptoms of anxiety, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we should maybe just, like, throw out what the definitions of depression and anxiety are. Go for it, um, According to the American Psychiatric Association. Yes. So depression, or major depressive disorder, because there is a difference between feelings of being depressed, which I think a lot of people suffer from that, and clinical depression, or major depressive disorder. And it is a common and serious mental illness that negatively affects how you feel, the way you think, and how you act. Fortunately, it is also treatable. Depression causes feelings of sadness and or loss of interest in activities once enjoyed. It can lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems and can decrease a person's ability to function at work and at home. Depression symptoms can vary from mild to severe and can include feeling sad or having a depressed mood, loss of interest or pleasure in activities once enjoyed, changes in appetite, weight loss or gain unrelated to dieting, trouble sleeping or sleeping too much, loss of energy or increased fatigue, increase of purposelessness or slowed movements and speech, actions observable by others, feeling worthless or guilty, difficulty thinking, concentrating, or making decisions, thoughts of death or suicide. And it is a mood disorder, and it is different than um, a minor setback or disappointment in your day. It's different than bereavement grieving. It's different than just being sad. Yeah. I think that that's something that needs to be addressed. That's some, something that, like, really grinds my gears is when people are, kind of throw that word around. Oh, I'm so depressed? I'm so... Which, you, like you said, you can be depressed for, like, short periods of time, but it's just kind of like... I feel like it's become such a blanketed statement again or like almost like a f- like it's in right i think <laughs> that there is a certain thing about using mental illnesses or mood disorders and kind of throwing it around in everyday language like I f- i'm so ocd or like i'm so yeah, bipolar right yeah, now yeah exactly you know where it's just like there are people who actually suffer from these disorders right and it's it's not helpful to kind of, like, throw it around like that. Right. And I think for me, when people throw around, the f- like, oh, I had a panic attack. Oh, that's really... That's the one yeah. for me that is more so than just, like, I'm depressed. Because, like, you can be depressed without having right, and depression. I think, <clears throat> I think sometimes people just have a difficulty with language and yeah. not understanding that there's a difference between being depressed and being sad. And so I think that they're just trying to put in words, I'm really sad right now when yeah. they're saying that they're depressed. But a panic attack, which I have a whole thing on panic attacks in uh, in my notes, a panic attack is something that's very, very specific. And it's, it's not just feeling it's not nerves. Yeah. Like, I think... Um, and it's not, like, overstress. It's not... Mm-hmm. I mean, stress can can help spur them, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's different than just, like, a feeling of being overwhelmed and stressed and actually having a panic attack. 
that for me that was one that since I was really young like really annoyed me when people would overgeneralize. Right. So, okay, panic attacks. You've had panic attacks. I've had panic yeah. attacks. Panic attacks are a anxiety disorder. Yeah. So it's not a depressive state. It's an anxiety disorder. Yeah. So can I before you share like what it actually is? Can I share what my first one was? Yes. Because it's like I remember the first panic attack. Well, I think I had like many ones before when I was younger, but this one, man, like stuck with me. So I had separation anxiety from my mom when I was little, like mm-hmm. really bad. Which like, is another anxiety disorder. Yeah, it is. And so whenever I wasn't with her, my mind would just concoct these horrible ways of my mom dying. I had horrible nightmares. I was so scared of being without her that I would, or that she would die and I would be by myself, basically, that I would panic and I would have to leave school and it was just a whole thing. So I walked home from school and I had my friend Alexis with me and I went to open the door and it was locked and my door, like, we never locked the door when my mom was home. It was always open. And so I'm, I just remember like jiggling the door handle and my friend Alexis being like, okay, let's just go play in the backyard and wait. And I just like remember it being like the world was spinning around me and like I couldn't see straight and I was like pacing like in the backyard looking for her, like screaming her name and then like going to the front yard and doing the same. And apparently it took seven minutes from that time to my mom being home and it was like it felt like it was two seconds and it felt like it was two hours at the same time and like I couldn't breathe and I'm 10 years old and my Mm -hmm. friend Alexis is like I don't know what to do and it's so bizarre because I remember it was St. Patrick's Day Mm -hmm. because we were wearing um like St. Patrick's Day themed shirts to school or whatever and like my mom got home and she was like I'm so sorry I hit every red light you know I just it took me longer than I thought to get home and I just remember like just sobbing but just being so disoriented like I remember it so vividly yet I don't remember much of anything because it was like I was in a tornado or something like everything was just spinning. If you are sitting here wondering if you've ever had a panic attack you probably haven't had a panic attack. Yeah. Because you know when you've had a panic it attack. It feels like you are having a heart attack. It feels like you're having a heart and attack. And you are dying. I've mm-hmm. literally called 911 on myself before because I remember, like, I was, like, 19, too. Like, I had had panic attacks for almost 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I was on the floor of my apartment in North Hollywood, and I was like, I am dying. This is what dying feels like. Well, I had my eating disorder at the time, too. So I was like, this is it. I'm done. I'm dying right now. So I called 911, and they were like this sounds like a panic attack. I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm dying. This is a heart attack. I'm dying. Like, right. It felt like my heart was like beating well, out of its chest. That's actually a common symptom of of panic attacks is yeah. feeling like you're having a heart attack. Almost everyone will say that that is a, a common thing that you experience. Yeah. So let's go into what happens to your body when yes. you are having a panic attack. So when you are confronted with danger, adrenaline is released in your brain and you can either uh, fight You can fly or you can freeze. So it's that fight, flight, or freeze response that happens. When you're having a panic attack, your flight response is activated in the same way it would be if you were being physically attacked. Yeah. So you are confronted with danger the same way you would be if somebody was coming at you with a knife, essentially. But there is no discernible reason you should be experiencing intense feelings of fear and panic. So sufferers of panic attack often feel that they're mentally unstable when they're having them, 
and they, they feel like they're experiencing a heart attack. So symptoms include heart pounding, shaking, dizziness, sweating, choking feeling, nausea, shallow or short breath, chest pain, numbness or tingling, chills and hot flashes, feelings of unreality, feeling like you're going crazy, feeling like you're going to die. Yeah. And if you have four or more of these symptoms, you are likely suffering from a panic attack. Um, and if you have four or more panic attacks within four weeks, you may have panic disorder. Yeah. And that was, man, when I was in fifth grade, it was all the time. Because, yeah. like, my mom worked at school, and then she would leave, and I would, like... I would start panicking, and I would lit- I would literally feel like I was sick. I would go, and I would say, I need to go home. And they would, like, keep me in the principal's office and be like, nope, you're not going home, because they knew that, like, I wasn't actually sick. That was the worst thing ever, though. They would, like, lock me in a room. Right. That, that's, <laughs> it, it doesn't help you. And actually, no. we'll, talk, we'll talk some ways in which you can not only help yourself, but also help people around you when they're having panic attacks. Yeah, but I mean, I just don't think they understood, like, what was going on with me. I think they just thought that I was, like... Overreacting. Overreacting, a needy child that just wanted their mom or, Mm -hmm. you know, like, making things up. And, you know, at times I was. You know, I just was, like, I... I was too scared to have her go. I felt like I needed to go home with her. But, like, obviously I was overreacting but not in my own head, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and they weren't able to, like, understand that. Well, here's here's part of it. When you are having an actual panic attack, there's two parts of your brain. There's a sympathetic part and a, and a parasympathetic part, and your sympathetic part of your brain is responsible for your flight-or-fight response. Yeah. Um, when you are having a panic attack, you experience incredible amounts of fear, like actual fear. Like, yeah. you're actually scared, and your body's reacting to it that way. That's why yeah. your heart pounds, your, your pupils dilate, all of that happens, you can't breathe, and you want to run away, but there's nothing to run away from. Yeah. And to make matters worse, the parasympathetic part of your brain, which usually calms you down yeah. whenever you're afraid, doesn't work for whatever reason. Yeah. Science doesn't even know why, but the parasympathetic part of your brain doesn't engage like, whenever bye. you're having a <laughs> panic attack. Yeah. So you're stuck in this heightened state of absolute paralyzing fear, and there's nothing there that's telling your brain to to shut it down. Yeah. So you basically have to sit in it for as long as it takes until you can come down yeah. out of it. And that's something that like my mom always kind of told me was to like, you know, start listing things around you, start, mm-hmm. you know, focusing on your breath, things that like kind of keep you centered and just know like she would always be like just know that it's going to end and know that it's going to pass. And for me as soon as I was able to label it as a panic attack, it was easier for me to, like, understand and, like, wait it out. It still sucked. Of course. But I was able to be like, this is a panic attack right now. Mm -hmm. Nothing is going to hurt me, and I need to, like, chill out. I mean, it doesn't happen like that all the time. But The interesting thing about panic attacks is, like, whenever I've had them, um, I'm rational enough to say this is this is not real. Yeah. I'm going to be okay. I just need to, like, breathe. I just need to wait this out. I just need to come out of it. Yeah. But it doesn't make it any less terrible. No, it still sucks. Like, while it's happening. Yeah, and then for me, well, we were talking about this a couple days ago where it's like, when it hits us, it's like, we are out for the day. Yeah. Like, I am done. It feels like I've gotten hit by a bus. I'm in bed. Mm -hmm. I've got, you know, like, that is when I spend the rest of the day just, like, having me time and, like, I have to cancel everything else and I can't do anything. The last time it happened to me... I was in bed 
and I couldn't sleep. Sometimes I have like pretty bad um, bouts of insomnia. Usually I'll sleep well for like a period of time and then I'll have a period of like weeks or so where I really don't sleep much. Yeah. And usually it's a, um, because I, I have high anxiety and usually from that I won't be able to sleep because I'll have running thoughts, which is just like yeah. laying in bed and not being able to shut your mind off That's at all. That's why I sleep with the TV on when I go to sleep. I, I do that sometimes now too. Or, you know, I'll just, like, take a melatonin or whatever if I yeah. know, if I can feel it coming where I'm yeah. just, like, I'm not going to be able to shut this down. I know this isn't, like, a cure for insomnia or anything, but what I do, this is, like, so weird. I've told people this before, and they're like, what the fuck? I'll, like, play a show that I know really well, and then I cast my friends in the roles <laughs> and close sleep? my eyes. Yes, and then I play it out in my head, like, my friends are those like roles I don't mm-hmm. know because it distracts me from like That's... other things that go on so like if I'm watching the show Friends I'm like okay Keegan is Rachel um, <laughs> my friend Betsy is gonna be Monica Chris is gonna be Joey and I'll like play it out in my head and that like is something that's easy to think about and I know the episodes so well that I like it, it helps, helps me fall you. asleep and not like be thinking about other things like the other night Chris turned the TV off before I was like actually asleep and I was like, oh, God, I can't. I'm too tired to get up and turn the TV back on. But, oh, fuck, no. That's actually funny to me because, for me, sometimes having the TV on makes it more difficult for me to sleep. Because there's more, like, noises and thoughts. There's, there's too many thoughts, and then I'm thinking about that. Yeah. Where sometimes to turn my brain off, I have to have it be quiet or just have, like, a fan on or something, some kind of, like, white noise to distract my mind. Yeah. Um. But, okay, so the last time I had a a bad panic attack, I was in bed, and I couldn't sleep. I was having running thoughts. I could not sleep. I was also on my period, so I was in, like, pain, um, which can keep me from sleeping. And I just went down this rabbit hole in my brain, which is often what happens to me. I get into running thoughts, and then you go down this pit, and then you start, like, repeating everything that you, you're you doing wrong, everything you don't like about yourself. And then you think about 10 years from now, and then you're like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, or 10 years ago, and you're like, oh, wow, I thought my life was going to be so different. I yeah. thought, and then you start spinning. I was yeah. spinning out is what yeah. happened. I totally spun out, and then I had the worst panic attack of my life. Like, I couldn't breathe. I felt like my heart was racing. Anthony was sleeping. I didn't want to wake him up, but I was shaking. I was having chills, um, like just hot flashes and then chills. And I was sobbing. I was crying. It was the worst. And eventually, I think I went on like that for about an hour and a half before before I finally woke Anthony up. And I was just like, I just need you to be awake with me right now because like I'm freaking, I was shaking. I was like physically shaking because I'm just like, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to come down from this right now. I bet once you were down though, you slept for a long time. <laughs> well, I didn't go to work the next day. Yeah. I called out of work and I actually like downloaded a meditation app. Yeah. Because I was just like, I need to, because even whenever I was out of it, the, so what they say is your panic attack can last for as little as 10 minutes, but that's not my case. It didn't last for 10 minutes. It lasted yeah. for a couple of hours, but the after effects of it can last for another however many hours like it can go on for a long time so even when I had come down from it I downloaded that meditation app because I was still like I need help with my breathing I still feel like I'm not breathing I still feel like I'm out of sorts yeah Um, and I needed to do that to focus on my breathing to try and sleep to try and like get it like to sleep it out yeah 
So um, here's some things that you can do if you are having an anxiety attack. And these actually mirror, my friend told me, who's a, who focuses on uh, meditation, uh, not meditation, yeah, mindfulness meditation. She's a mindfulness meditation teacher. And she said that these are kind of um, hallmarks of that as well. Tips to help you with an anxiety attack. Look around. Find five things you can see, four things you can touch, three things you can hear, and two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. This is called grounding, and it can help you feel like... It can help when you feel like you have lost all control of your surroundings. And I, when I read this, I read this after I had my last really bad anxiety attack, I'm like, oh yeah, because you don't feel connected. You feel like you're deep sunken in your brain, Yeah. and you don't feel connected to the world around you at all. Yeah. So you need to touch things to know that like you are in a place, like a real yeah. place. You need to like feel things, smell things, taste things, to know that you're a person, you're yeah. in a place, you're safe. And it helps you kind of like get your mind off it a little bit too because you're thinking about something else that's easy to think about. Mm-hmm. And but I know we've been on anxiety attacks or panic attacks for a long time, so we'll move off of it. But just before we do, um, things that you should and should not do to someone who is having a panic attack. Right. <laughs> things that you should not do. Remind your friend of the problem. Make assumptions of what your friend needs dismiss your friend by saying stop panicking calm down you're overreacting it's all in your head (laughs) or leave your friend alone yeah and things that you should do take your friend to a quiet corner take slow deep breaths with your friend get water and keep your friend cool be predictable motive your friend in short simple sentences be understanding to your friend's problem be patient and seek medical help if needed. Hold your friend till he or she returns to his normal state. Yep. So just essentially just be there for them. Be a calming resource yeah. for them. Yeah, just your presence is helpful. Right, and don't try to convince them. For all of this, for all anxiety disorders, depression, um, mood disorders, don't try and make them feel like they can they can will themselves out of it. Yeah, don't be like, snap out of it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work. I've tried. I've tried it a lot. <laughs> So, they found that panic attacks can actually be linked directly, not panic attacks, sorry, panic disorder, Mm -hmm. which is different than people can have panic attacks and not have panic disorder. If you have panic disorder, you have panic attacks. People with panic disorder, it oftentimes leads to another anxiety disorder that we've discussed in the past, agoraphobia. Yep. So, I know that you told me that your mom suffered from agoraphobia for a little while. Yeah, she did. I can't remember how long exactly... But, I mean, it, when she had agoraphobia, it didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. They were just like, oh, you're depressed. And she's like, no, I'm not depressed. Like, that's not it at all. Mm-hmm. I have a fear of... Agoraphobia, if you don't know, is a um, fear of leaving at the house. It's actually a fear of being in situations where escape may be difficult or mm-hmm. embarrassing, so you stay inside. Yeah, she basically had to, like, get herself out of it, and she, like, she was in a mental hospital for, like, three weeks, and then she bought a book that she actually gave me when I first started having panic attacks and was diagnosed with anxiety, and it was super helpful, and she, like, read this book and, like, did all the research that she could on her own, and then just started doing, like, 
tiny little things every day. Like, I'm just going to go to the corner and back. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go. And then she'd be like, okay, I'm just going to go pick up a prescription and then come back home. That's actually amazing that she was able to do that on her own because that is something that they that they do with you yeah. whenever they're working with you on well, extreme anxiety they, I disorders. I think they put her on medication, too. Mm-hmm. So I think that was probably helpful. But she kind of had to, like... But she put herself through exposure therapy is what that is. Pretty much, you yeah. I mean? she, well, she knew that, like, that wasn't how she wanted to live her life. And I really should ask her to tell me that whole story again because I don't remember a lot of, like, the details. I just remember her, like, kind of saying, yeah, that she would, like, put herself in difficult situations and then just kind of slowly... Uh, go further and further away to like test it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's impressive. It is quite impressive. Go, mom. So I'm, I just mentioned exposure therapy. So I guess I'll talk about that for just a moment. Yeah. Um, exposure therapy is something that they do with anxiety disorders in particular, or like behavioral disorders like OCD, like extreme o- OCD, or you'll see it with like uh, forms of OCD like hoarding. And also agoraphobia, where they will expose you to your fear. Yeah. <laughs> because anxiety, as you'll find, all anxiety disorders, phobias, panic attacks, PTSD, all of these things, they're rooted in fear yeah. and your body's response to fear. So exposure therapy basically puts you in a position to be exposed to the thing that is making you afraid. Yeah. Little by little until you're not afraid of it anymore, basically. Yeah. Don't just, like, throw a spider at someone who's scared of spiders. No, don't do that. <laughs> Definitely go to a professional, or, yeah. I mean, you can do it yourself as Madigan's yeah. mom did, but just beware that you can't... Just like with hoarding, um, we could have an entire episode on uh, hoarders, <laughs> but with hoarding is something I have a lot of personal experience with in my family, like actual hoarding, not just like I like to hold on to stuff. Yeah. With that especially, there's this idea that you can kind of like go in and throw every, like throw the person's things away. And then it's all going to be good. No. And then it's going to fix it because the stuff is the problem, but the stuff is not the problem. So you can't attack that and think that you're solving the problem just like you can't throw a spider on someone who has arachnophobia and expect it to solve the problem. Right. Well, and then, you know, we're going to talk more and more about eating disorders as we go along, but that's another really big misconception is that it's like, oh, well, this person is eating or, like, let's just give them food and then that will fix the problem. Right. If I can get their weight back up, then they'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, it's part of it. You have to, your brain has to be normal again for you to be thinking rationally, but, like, that's not the problem. You know, you have to look deep into, you know, your memories and your psyche and realize, like, what is, what is this person going through Mm -hmm. like for me I remember my therapist would have me go on like hour-long outings with my dad just Mm -hmm. to get me like out of the house for a little bit and I just remember hating it and being so anxious but like having having to do it like every Monday for an hour we have to like go and get ice cream and like Mm -hmm. be without mom and oh my god it was horrible and I was just like okay I'm trying to enjoy my ice cream I'm trying to enjoy my ice Mm -hmm. cream yeah yeah I'm, I just remember for me, like, the first time that I was ever on me- medication was, like, the first time that I was actually able to, like, go through a play date without, like, having to call my mom and freak out. And I think part of it was kind of the placebo effect, too, because I was like, it's fixing me. Yeah. Um, but do, do you feel like growing up, your anxiety or your depression were more of a hindrance to you or both? At different times in my life. Different stuff. Yeah. my I feel like my anxiety has always been the most prevalent but as an adult I feel like I've kind of learned to manage my like day-to-day anxiety Mm -hmm. but I still will get panic attacks where it's Mm -hmm. more so 
my depression, I feel like I won't necessarily get like intense. Well, I will get intense bouts of sadness, but it'll be for like no, it'll be for no reason at all. My body will hurt. I'll have no energy. I'll have lifelessness. I won't have Mm -hmm. interest in anything. And especially around my period, it's horrible. And that's another reason why I hate my period so much. Because a few days before, I just, it's like I feel like I have a cloud over my head and nothing is ever going to be okay. Yeah. For me, they've kind of merged into one almost being the same thing. Yeah. Well, they. I mean, they do typically go hand in hand. People who have anxiety typically have a, t- a higher likelihood of having depression. Yeah, one for me too, like with my depression, it would lead to me being anxious about it and then I would have to try to I would I would choose horrible ways of trying to like calm my anxiety. You know what I mean? I think I would, that's that's funny because for me I feel like it's the opposite. Like for me I feel like when my depression is at its worst, it it, it comes from my anxiety. Like, it's me being, like, highly, highly, highly anxious uh-huh. and then feeling like I just need to shut all of this down. Like, yeah. and so the only way, there's, like, no middle ground. When I'm highly, highly anxious, there's no middle ground between being anxious and being depressed or having feelings and dealing with those feelings in a healthy way. I just shut all of them off. Yeah. So then I'm depressed. Oh, I just overfeel everything and I, like have a panic attack <laughs> yeah I start well, like crying and hyperventilating and like I think I laying fear, on the floor I fear panic attacks so much yeah which is which is actually why panic attacks lead yeah, to agoraphobia exactly. it's why they lead to agoraphobia or just lead to having a panic attack because you're scared of having a panic attack yeah and that's actually true too like that they yeah. can't pinpoint a trigger for what causes panic attacks but that is one of them well, yeah I'm sure it's just different panic everybody attacks. yeah um, or you know because you, you're having a fear of having a panic attack which causes a panic attack but for me that fear of having a panic attack causes me to shut myself completely down yeah. to the point where I cannot function. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? Where I'm just like, I will just curl up in a ball and cry and then yeah. fall into like a, a period of, of complete purposelessness, yeah. helplessness, well, and I, defeativ- but defeatism. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, because like when I was in treatment and things like that, one thing that they talked a lot about was um, like checking in with people. And that's something I do a lot as soon as I get to those feelings. Like I'll just be like, Chris, I just need to like check in with you real quick and like tell you what's up because I know that if I keep those things bottled up, that's what's going to happen. And it doesn't fix it. You know, I'll still feel like crap. I'll still feel depressed or anxious. But like just checking in with someone and having someone else be aware of what's going on. Having a having outlet it, for your depression. Well, it just kind of you're speaking it out loud. Yeah. It helps you rationalize things. It has another person kind of just like validate it a little bit you know just kind of be like okay I see that you're feeling that way and then kind of move on you know right I think that that's super super helpful the times when my depression were okay I should I should um preface this by saying that I have never been to the doctor for my depression I have never been medicated for it by choice I didn't want to so I never did it probably should have when my depression was at its worst um because it was very, very bad, and it lasted months. Yeah. Months of absolutely not doing anything for myself at all. Well, that's the thing for me is, like, I feel like my medication, although it can sometimes 
be a pain in the ass and I get horrible withdrawals if I don't take it for a day. But like it's it saved me, honestly. Like if I wasn't taking my medication, Lord knows mm-hmm. what I would be, mm-hmm. honestly. Like the people who don't take medication and deal with this shit, I'm like, bravo. Because as soon as I feel a panic attack happening, I'm like, I'm popping a Xanax. <laughs> like Well, it's everybody is different. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like everybody yeah. is different. So Right, I'm not, like, shaming you for not taking medication. I think it's, like, amazing that you're able to, like, get through it. But, I mean, like, some people can't get through it without medication. Like, it's different for every person. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to say, like, everybody should be on medication or you should just be able to deal with this by being in yoga. And it's, like, that's not how... No. That's not how mood disorders work. No, and it's going to be different for each person. And And to be honest, and I've said this many times, like, I didn't... Do, do medication. I've never done medication. I do have this weird thing about taking medication, but to be honest, at the time when my depression was at its very, very worst, I probably should have been yeah. on medication. Like, yeah. it probably really would have helped me. But it's hard when you, especially as an adult, if you're dealing with these things and you don't have somebody, like, making your doctor's appointments, getting you there. And a new adult. I was a new adult when yeah. this was happening. Like, I didn't know how to take care of myself No, all. so the fact that you didn't go to a doctor or get medication doesn't surprise me because it's like, when I'm there, like, I can't do anything for myself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, luckily, the past like five years or so I I've kind of been able to get myself out of my depressive states because I know that I'm usually going through withdrawal Mm -hmm. it's usually when I have those times um because I have a a stable medication that I take that helps me a lot so I haven't really had to deal with that but when I was like in my eating disorder I took myself off medication when I was 18 mm-hmm. don't do that do not take yourself off yeah, your medication yeah you need to a seek a medical idea. professional yeah such a bad idea and um, that just made shit so much worse but I couldn't take care of myself I couldn't call a doctor I couldn't do anything because yeah I, there was there was no way the time whenever my depression was at its worst was at its worst that I would have been able to go to a doctor's appointment. No, Like, no. without somebody taking me there. There's yeah. There's no way. Exactly. And I didn't have anyone, and which also yeah. led to my feelings of, ho- like, hopelessness and helplessness. And Because you felt like you were just by yourself. I felt alone, and I felt like I couldn't do anything. Yeah. I physically felt like I could not do anything. It was a miracle that I could, like, get up and take my dog out every yeah. day. You know, yeah. I didn't eat because I couldn't. Like, I didn't clean because I couldn't. Yeah. I would sleep all day. I would take sleeping pills in the middle of the day to sleep. Yeah, because, because that's like your escape. Yeah, because if yeah. I wasn't sleeping, I was I was miserable. miserable. Yeah, yeah, you no, know. I understand. I completely get it. So you brought up your medication. What yeah. um, what medications have you been on and uh, what are the pros and cons of that? Okay, so my first medication that I was on was Paxil. And I remember I was on 10 milligrams, which is nothing. It's really, really low, but I was also 10 years old. And it's interesting because when I started looking at medications for this episode, it was like I looked up Paxil in children. And in 2007, I think I read, or maybe it was 2013, I don't remember. Maybe I wrote it down somewhere, but I'm not looking at it right now. Um, It was basically like the FDA was like, do not give children younger than 18 this pill because the symptoms 
uh, or the side effects will just like skyrocket and it is a huge risk of suicidal thoughts and attempts mm-hmm. which is what happened to me Isn't i was that like crazy it's with depre- like depression medication can cause you to kill yourself well because you can have too much of Whatever that chemical Whatever. is. You can have too much serotonin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's that's why medication is so picky and you need to have so many follow-ups with your doctors because they have to constantly be making sure that it's the exact amount that you need at any given time. And mm-hmm. it can change over time. That's why it's such a delicate balance. And, yeah, like, for me, when I was 12, I'd been on it for about two years, I think, and I was in seventh grade, and I told my friend that I was going to kill myself, and I don't remember why. I don't remember. It was probably something stupid, but I said it, and it scared her, and she told a teacher, and then I ended up having, like, I had never met, like, the dean of students or whatever like it was a huge school and I had to go up to this like room and I was like what the fuck they handed me a prayer card and then called my parents in I went to a very catholic school they handed me a prayer card and they called both of my parents in which I was really embarrassed about like if it was just my mom I think I would have been fine but because I had so many issues with my dad I was like I don't want him here like it was really awkward for me and they were like basically like Maddie says she's gonna kill herself and I was like well fucking great And I don't think that they knew that that was because of my Paxil, because I continued to be on it until I was 18 years old. Well, I think, why would people assume that the thing that's supposed to be making you feel better is making you feel worse? Right, well, and they didn't have the full understanding at the time. I think I know, I think they knew that, like, it could lead to those thoughts, but I think just also having that awareness for me when I was younger, because I do think they knew that. And I was like, okay, then that made me kind of understand myself a little bit better, why I felt crappy sometimes, but I stayed on it until I was, like, 18, and then I took myself off of it. Um, Don't do it. Really, really, really don't do it. Um, Do you think that taking your... And we're going to talk about this more um, when we do an eating disorder episode, but do you think that taking yourself off of your depression medication contributed? Yes, totally. Well, I started cutting again and burning, and because I couldn't, I had no coping mechanism. Like, I moved to L.A. and didn't have a doctor. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a way of refilling my medication. And I was like, I'm better. Like, I'm good. I don't have to do those Which things anymore. Which is very common for people with mental illnesses. Like, you see it all the time with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia in particular. Yeah. Where people will be on medication, be better, and then say, well, I'm better. I don't need my medication anymore. Exactly. Which, you're better because you're on your medication. Exactly. So, for me, you know, and then other factors, too. Just physically not being able to get my medication and stuff, you know. So, I was like, I'm going to go off of it. And it's all going to be good and then shit bad shit started happening to me and I was not dealing with it right and it my old coping mechanisms were like kind of working but not working you know the way that they had worked for me in high school and, and by coping mechanisms I mean like hurting myself it's mm-hmm. not a coping mechanism and then I think it kind of it, it spiraled into my food and that was kind of like the new thing that kind of felt like it was working and it was like fixing other things in my life and it and probably felt less damaging than actually like cutting well or... it was invisible yeah it's exactly. an invisible illness and it's something that a lot of people complimented me on and especially being a young actress and you know so we'll get into a lot of that more um in a few weeks but yeah i think that going off medication made me just less stable like i there's like a 
a guy that I dated and he like basically got me to like sleep with him and then left me and that was like the first guy besides my boyfriend that I ever slept with and I lost my fucking shit like I legitimately snapped and I went batshit crazy and like he was like what the fuck and then like a few years later he like contacted me and was like remember when you were like fucking crazy and I'm like bye (laughs) nope not we're not gonna like bring that up again um I just couldn't I couldn't handle anything you know Mm -hmm. like someone doing something like that to me was like I I couldn't I couldn't cope with it at all and so when I was in treatment the second time the first time they put me back on Paxil and then the second time I was in treatment I was like this clearly isn't working this medication is not doing anything for me by the way the reason they put me on Paxil is because that's what my mother takes so they were there is a lot of genetic um reasons why you would give your child the same medication Mm -hmm. as the parent if it's working for you if it's working for the parent chances are especially if it's a young child those are your best odds of giving them a medication Mm -hmm. that's the same so i was like clearly this isn't working for me i really just want to try something new at and you know in treatment there's a psychiatrist that comes twice a week you know like all of that was kind of at my disposal so he put me on lexapro which is an ssri let me check my ssri here uh, SSRI is selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Most commonly prescribed antidepressants typically have fewer side effects, block the absorption of serotonin to the brain, and makes it easier for brain cells to send and receive messages, resulting in better and more stable moods. Um, and then the what if you're not taking an SSRI, you could be taking an SNRI, which is a serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor, and it's used to treat ma- major depressive disorder, mood disorders, and possibly ADHD or OCD, anxiety disorders, menopausal symptoms, fibromyalgia, and chronic neuropathic pain. Uh, they raise your serotonin levels and norif- norepinephrine? Sure. Whatever. Norepinephrine. Norepinephrine. Aha, I know Thank that you. one. How do I know that one? I don't, I don't know. know. Probably from like uh, Probably commercials. commercials. <laughs> Two uh, neurotransmitters that play a key role in stabilizing mood. So they're a little bit different, but SSRIs are way more common. And um, so it says, but also if you have too much serotonin, it could lead to serotonin syndrome. Too much serotonin can lead to excessive nerve cell activity, which could create a deadly collection of symptoms. And that's kind of where we're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. having really bad side effects. So how has Lexapro been for you? It's been okay. Yeah. I was on a higher dosage when I was in treatment. And it worked really, really well. I really, really liked it. And then when I went to my asshole doctor that I have now, if anyone has like a great doctor in the Burbank area they want to refer me to to get me away from this asshole, that would be great. He was like, oh, it can be really, it can be bad for your heart. But it's really only bad for your heart if you already have like heart palpitations. Mm -hmm. So he dropped it 10 milligrams. So I feel like it is helpful because it kind of sort of stabilizes me but yet I still will have really bad bouts of depression and anxiety and both Paxil and Lexapro have horrible withdrawal symptoms Mm -hmm. like just the fucking worst so these are some of the things that can happen to you when you go off your meds your digestive system is fucky Uh, you may have nausea vomiting cramps diarrhea loss of appetite 
blood vessel control. You may sweat excessively, flush, or find hot weather difficult to tolerate. Sleep changes. You may have trouble sleeping in unusual dreams or nightmares. Balance. This is a big one for me. You may be dizzy or lightheaded or feel like you don't quite have your sea legs when walking. That is a big one. Like, literally, I will not take my pills for 24 hours, and I feel like I'm not, like... Like, your equilibrium's totally off. It's so off. Like, it feels like I'm not on this planet. Mm -hmm. Like, it's bizarre. Control of movements. Another one. You may experience tremors, restless legs, uneven gait, and difficulty coordinating speech and chewing movements. For me, like my speech is really tough like talking and like or or i'll speak very slowly or you know things Mm -hmm. like that that's another big one that fucks with me unwanted feelings obviously you may have mood swings feel agitated anxious manic depressed irritable or confused even paranoid or suicidal you may also experience strange sensations you may have pain or numbness you may become hypersensitive to sound or sense a ringing in your ears you may experience brain zaps a feeling that resembles an electric shock in your head or a sensation that some people describe as brain shivers oh Uh, my god yeah it's bonkers paxil takes about five days to be completely out of your body lexapro is a little over six days so if i'm but they only last for like 25 or 26 hours each that's why you have to take them about the same time every day i can sometimes miss one pill and like have it be 48 hours and i can be okay but sometimes i can skip and i'm not okay if Mm -hmm. i miss two i i'm out like it's horrible like Mm -hmm. everything is so much harder for me to do and i start feeling a lot of these symptoms and it sucks do you think that you'll be on medication for the rest of your life? Probably. Yeah? Yeah. At this point, I'm like, it's working for me, so why? I don't want to go through any of this, and honestly, from what I've been through when I'm not on medication, I don't want to see what that looks like now. Mm-hmm. I don't care to mess with my psyche. I'm scared of what I would become, I mm-hmm. guess. Like, yeah, you no. know, would I, would I not be able to handle things? I already am very overdramatic and very reactive to things while I'm on medication. If I was off medication, dear Lord, help us all. I would Mm -hmm. be a lonely human being. (laughs) I would probably lose a lot of my relationships and not cope with things very well at all. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's good to keep Maddie medicated for now. (laughs) I think it's a good idea. I would like to get different medication, though, and I would also really like to get help with when I'm on my period because like those few days before it doesn't matter if I'm on my medication well see if you can get on something that I'm I'm going to my um general care physician and having them put me back on progesterone so I just need a new I need a new doctor this guy is the fucking worst so I don't have a psychiatrist that gives me my medication that, like, is specialized in Who do you that. go to, a general? I just go to my general doctor okay. because that's what I did when I was younger. I went mm-hmm. to a psychiatrist when I was first getting my medication, and then it was, like, working. So, my literally, I, for eight years, I just basically had automatic refills. Mm-hmm. And I would just go to the pharmacy and pick it up. Like, I didn't have to even see a doctor. I would see my doctor, you know, once or twice a year for my checkups and stuff. And they would, you know, quickly just be like, is it, you know, are you noticing any changes with it? No. Okay, great. Then we'll just continue with what we're doing. This doctor needs me to see him every three months, even though literally nothing changes. And when I go in, the he's getting better about this because I've shut him down so many times, but literally he'll sit me down and go, so how's the anorexia going? What? Like those exact words. And I try to explain to him, look, you know, in in the world that I'm in, you know, we talk about full recovery from eating disorders. I consider myself recovered. What I'd like to focus on is my anxiety and depression. You know, he asks me about 
you know, how that's been going. He'll be like, are you having panic attacks? Yes, no, whatever. And then he starts asking me about my career. Nope. He's like, are, oh, are you making enough money doing that? Are you oh, kidding are you? me? Oh, yeah. He acts like he's my dad. Nope. Shut oh, it yeah. down. It's horrible. And he'll be like, you know, I told him, I started telling him about my podcast, and he just kind of, like, looks at me like I'm an idiot. And, like, he's just the most, like, underhandedly no, you need another evil. doctor. You need another doctor. I know. Like, it's horrible. Like, literally, every time I go, I, like, text Chris the whole time, like, how unhappy I am. And he's just like, I swear to God, you better get another doctor. You and need I, another doctor. I always, like, don't do it. It's no, horrible. I know. It's hard. Look, man, I've been saying that I'm going to get back on birth control for how many months now? Yeah. And I still haven't done it. It's hard to, like, make yourself do those, like, adult things where you have yeah. to, like... Well, especially when you're trying to find a new one. Right. I'm just like, Ugh, I have so to go. Time. I haven't been to the doctor in years. Like, that's the reason why I'm putting it off. I haven't is, been like, to the dentist in a really long time. Oh, girl, I hadn't gone in five years. <gasps> and then I went... I haven't been that long. I hadn't gone in five years, and I went, and they were like... No cavities. And I was like, oh. Oh, no, I know I have cavities for at, sure. At 28, this is, like, the biggest point of pride that I have in my life is that I've never had a cavity. Oh, shut up. I have cavities. I have horrible enamel. I get cavities all the time. You gotta go to the dentist, girl. Yeah, I know I do. So, um, yeah, he's he's the worst. And, like, you don't fucking bring up the stressors in life mm-hmm. to, like, prove. Right. And then I remember when I was graduating from college last semester it was incredibly stressful and I was using my Xanax more often than usual because I only get my Xanax like once every three months Mm because I don't use them all the time and um so he was asking me and I was like I'd really like another prescription because I'm just really really like experiencing more anxiety than usual and he was basically like well we all get a little stressed out sometimes no uh, it's like fuck you you're a doctor you don't understand that there's a difference between anxiety and being stressed out or he doesn't understand and being nervous but also like my a woman that I used to work for had a fucking broken rib and went to this guy and he wouldn't even give her an x-ray so Uh -uh. (laughs) bye He's great. He's great. Yeah. Um. So we are coming up on an hour here, but yep. kind of to to wrap. Do you have anything else you want to add? No. Okay. So I think that you know, as the weeks are going, we'll just keep chatting. We and, will. Yeah. And yeah. we'll definitely have. I know we're kind of focusing on it a little bit right now because it's Mental Health Month, but we will definitely do episodes periodically talking about things to do with uh, mental health because it's very important. Yeah. Um. The only thing that I kind of wanted to add here at the end is. We talked a little bit about a medic- medication and the pros and cons, and like I said, when I was going through the worst of it, in hindsight, I feel like I probably should have been on medication. It probably would have helped me. I didn't do it because I have a weird aversion to medication. If you have a weird aversion to medication and you just, the cons outweigh the pros for you for whatever reason, and you feel like you can't do it, there are things that you can do that are alternatives to Definitely. being on a medication. There are things that have been proven to help, like go to a therapist, do work on breathing exercises, do maybe look into mindfulness meditation or yoga or some kind of physical activity that will um, kind of raise those uh, endorphin levels in your body. Definitely. Um, I know that there's been a lot of talk about marijuana and CBD as a treatment for depression and anxiety. I will say that... One of the reasons why I do not smoke weed is because it raises my anxiety levels. Yeah, it's different for everybody. It's different for everyone. For me, it makes me more anxious, 
so I will not use it um, to quell my anxiety, but it could work for you. Yep. Or CBD could work for you. CBD oil or some other form could, could be beneficial for you. There are alternatives if you are looking for ways to combat your anxiety or your depression and you don't feel like medication is the right path for you, but I would suggest seeking out someone to help you make those decisions. Yes, and... Also, to kind of close out, I want to give a few hotline numbers for people. Absolutely. Um, these are some free crisis hotline numbers. The National Alliance on Mental Illness is 1-800-950-NAMI, and the number is 6264. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is one 800 273 talk or 8255 substance abuse and mental health services administration helpline number is 1-800-662-HELP or 4357 and the teen line is 1-310-855-HOPE or 1-800-TLC-TEEN-852-8336 so those are just a few hotlines. If mm-hmm. you want more or anything more specific, it is a Google search away. Those are always really, really helpful when mm-hmm. you feel like you don't have someone. Like, you know, I can just go into the next room and talk to somebody. Right. If you don't have someone like that, that's a good place to go. Yeah, I think it's really important to know that you're not alone. I think it's something like one in six people um, in the United States suffer from some form of anxiety or depression. Yeah. Um, oh, and also don't play the game where, like, if you're helping somebody who's depressed, don't play the game of, like, oh, I know more about that than you. Mine is worse than yours. Because I've totally right. done that. Be- like, right. I mean, I've experienced that before. Right. Where it's like, oh, well, you'll never have it as bad as me. Or, oh, I understand. Trust me, mine is way right. worse. And listen, as much as I believe in the power of thought, and I believe that for me personally, kind of making this decision to try and be better. Like, I I actually did make a decision where I was just like, stop repeating this tape in your brain of everything is terrible, you're terrible, you're you're bad, you're ugly, you're worthless. I did make a decision to do that and put a conscious effort to feel better. Also, don't tell people that they can just feel better. Because when you're in the midst of it, until you are able to either put yourself in a place like that or get on the right medication or do, you know, this, that, and the other to get healthy, that is not going to help them to tell them that we'll just be happy. Just be happy doesn't help. It doesn't help. Yeah. Give them, you know, constructive phone calls, doctor information. Mm -hmm. Be supportive. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. If you feel like you need to say or do something, those are good things to to do. And also for people who are supporting people with anxiety and depression, you don't always have to be 100% involved because that's taxing on you. You know, if you feel right. like it's something that's unhealthy for you to be supporting somebody else, that's when you can help veer them toward someone who's a professional because that you don't have to put that on yourself. Right. Don't feel like you have to be that person's yeah. lifeline. You're never responsible 100% for somebody else's mental health as much as it can feel that way. Yeah. You can be a support for them and, and be then a it, guide for them. And but if it becomes too much for you... That's okay, because you have to look after your mental health as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So we look forward to talking more about mental health this month. Mm-hmm. It's something that I think is very close to both of our hearts. And um, you can always go ahead and email us with any 
issues if you're having a tough time. I know Madigan and I have both experienced difficult times. If you just need somebody to talk to and feel like you don't have anybody and you don't feel comfortable calling mm-hmm. a hotline, you just want to talk to someone, you can email us. We're totally oh, open sure. to receiving that. And um, our email is neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist or on Twitter at Yamp Podcast. Please join our Facebook group because yeah. I feel so alone and posting in that group. I know. <laughs> and that would be such a great place for people to also post about things and get support from other people. Mm-hmm. Please join it. I know one day it's going to be more than it is now. Now, yeah, but, and I'm totally. But I'm enjoying forward. it as it is right now. But I totally look forward to having people yeah. kind of have conversations in there and join yeah, our community, and support each other, and mm-hmm. it's going to be beautiful. Yeah, and that's a gorgeous place to do it. So yeah. please, please um, find us on Facebook and join I, our group. Yeah. Also, uh, just reminding you that we you can literally find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're going to push Radio Public on you a little bit. We're at $6.60, Keegan. We oh, are man. rolling in Look the dough. Oh, we are just like living it up, living <laughs> our best lives. Uh, so listen on Radio Public. If you feel like it, that'd be great. We love you guys. And with that, we encourage you to rage, rage on. on. Bye with my sexy voice. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Ho, 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 ho! Your search is at an <laughs> end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy, or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.